Right, and not forecasted. Just, uh, yeah, I, it was it was quite a thing. Fortunately, it stopped finally, so we could have worship this morning. <laughs> like, yeah, right, right. So, uh, no, it, that's something else. But I love it when the sun is coming through in the morning through these windows. It's just, it's a fantastic thing. So thank you all for uh, coming today, and we'll go ahead and get started. Um, you've got the handout. Um, we're continuing our look at the spiritual disciplines, and uh, we're a few weeks into this now. We've looked at the spiritual discipline of what we call daily prayer, and just that time that we set aside each day to prayerfully ruminate on God's word, digest it, right? Pray, to pray it back to him. That's really the foundational spiritual discipline from which everything else really flows. It's kind of a keystone habit, as uh, one author, Charles Duhigg, puts it. A keystone habit are those habits that you have, that if you do that, then all these other things line up as well, right? So for many people, a keystone habit is exercise. For others, it's you know getting up early in the morning. If I do that, then all these other things will, will fall into place. Um, daily prayer is really a keystone habit when it comes to our spiritual discipline, our spirituality. Uh, then last week, so last week we looked at the uh, spiritual discipline case for why I think it's a really valuable practice that has largely um, fallen out of practice um, within the Lutheran Church. And I think in other denominations as well. Um, many times we just associate it's one of those things we say, "Oh, that's just too Catholic." And if at the end of your confession I said, "Go and say, you know, eight Hail Marys and do your penance," then that would probably be too Catholic. Um, although I'm always skeptical when somebody just dismisses something by saying that's too Catholic. Well, okay, let's talk about what that means. Be that as it may, we talked about how the practice of individual confession and absolution can in fact be really life-giving and liberating when you have things that you are carrying on your heart, on your soul, because what Satan always wants to do is just to needle us, to accuse us, to point out and say, well, okay, yeah, you stand there on Sunday morning and you give a, a general confession but does God really forgive those sins that you know about that nobody else knows about? Individual confession and absolution is a way to ensure that Satan is not able to hold that over us, where you can hear that word, that forgiving word spoken personally and directly over you. So that was what we looked at last week. Now this week, one that, and I think in many ways is sort of the um, consummate or epitome of a spiritual discipline when people think about this, which is fasting fasting. I'm excited to get into this. So let me say a word of prayer and, and we'll get after it. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for gathering us together on this beautiful morning. Thank you for the snow, which reminds us of the forgiving blood of your son, Jesus, that makes us white of snow. We thank you for the sunshine as well, Lord, and how uh, you shine in our hearts with the light of your glory. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear and to receive what you would teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to, to start out with a little humor and put it in proper context, number one on your handout, flaunting our piety is a perennial temptation, a perennial temptation. Jesus spoke of this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And then I appreciated this. This is from uh, the kind of um, humor website, Babylon B. It says, Confirmed, Facebook fasts only count if you loudly announce them in advance, right? And it says on there, I'm going to be off Facebook for a while to focus on more important things, just so you all know. And for those of you who aren't on Facebook, you're like, what is this talking about here? But um, any kind, anytime we have some sort of piety or practice of faith, the temptation then is, uh, Lane, as you're coming in, the, if you want to grab a hand on the back pew right there. Um, the temptation then is to boast about it before people. So how, how great am I for doing this? And perhaps with fasting, that's a special temptation. But let me just ask you all in general, are your perceptions about fasting generally positive or negative, or is it just not something you've thought about at all? What, are, what would you say are your general impressions about, about fasting? Okay, neutral. Paul says totally neutral, neutral because you just don't think about it, don't hear about it, or neutral because it's neither positive nor negative. Okay, good enough. Others of you? Okay, a positive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. 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 Sure. Yeah. So Han says his experience has been a, a positive one. He points out how in many ways uh, fasting is just a very practical kind of thing where it just frees you up, frees up some time from having to uh, prepare meals or what have you. Others, a few positive or a negative or somewhere in between um, impression of, of fasting. Yeah, Tara. Sure. Yeah, right. So, sure. That, yep, that's a great point. So, you know, Tara says that she had an impression of it that it was kind of crazy, which it might be. Let's not let's not just dismiss that. Um, but that for her, it's also a very edifying thing. And that, yeah, the popular kind of stereotypes or perceptions about it don't necessarily have to be the case, which is to say it doesn't have to be like Jesus. Well, I'm going to do it like Jesus. I got to go for 40 days, right? No, it might just be, you know, a, a few hours or part of a day. We'll get into some of the practical stuff about it later. Yeah, Esther. Sure, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep, exactly. You know, that's a great point that fasting doesn't just have to be about food. That's the, the most basic one, but there are other things that we can and maybe should fast from as well. All right. So let's, let's take a closer look at what the scriptures have to teach about this, which is surprisingly quite a bit, quite a bit is said about fasting. So number two on your handout, fasting is the discipline of denying the body to feed the soul. Very straightforward. It's denying the body to feed the soul. The idea is that I'm going to go without, whether it be food or even in some cases, rare cases, drink, or whether it be Facebook or whether it be TV or whether it be this, that, or other thing, I'm denying myself this thing in order to feed and nurture and nourish my soul even more. And uh, this goes back to the Old Testament. Um, I, I don't think I put it on your handout, but in Leviticus, there was the, uh, the feast of Yom Kippur. And it's funny, we call it a feast, but it was a fast. And this was the first place in the Bible where it was commanded that um, God's people fast. This is the only day of the year on the, the Jewish calendar where there was a commanded fast. Now, they would um, ultimately fast on other occasions. Um, you think of Jonah preaching to the Ninevites, and they called for a fast. Of course, they were Jews. They were, um, they were pagans, as you'd say. But uh, this is the first and only place where God said, this is the one day of the year when you must fast. Um, where it says it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, which is to say to fast and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Now I read that, think of the Sabbath in its own way as a kind of fasting from, from work in its own way. Then you get Joel, Joel chapter two from the section that we're, we sing it each week during Lent and was one of the readings for Ash Wednesday. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. So I think that's an important line there, rend your hearts and not your garments, right? It's not just an outward thing. It's meant to be an inward change as well. So what are some of the ways you think that contemporary society encourages fasting or discourages fasting? Uh, have you seen any, any positive spoken in just society at large about fasting? Is that something that you've noticed or do you hear it in more of a, a negative kind of way? Yeah, Chip. Right. Yeah. 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 Chip points out it's kind of a fad diet thing, which is like not really a diet. Um, I, and when I was in uh, college, I had a, a friend of mine and we were getting to Lent. And we were talking about, you know, what we're going to be giving up for Lent, this kind of conversation. And she said, oh, I'm not, I'm going to give up food every day from sunup to sundown. Okay. This was a girl who I knew was kind of struggling with body image and, and this sort of thing. And I was like, Linda, that's called Ramadan. Okay. You don't need to just give up food. You probably shouldn't be giving up food from sunup to sundown every single day. Um, it's one thing if like, you know, you do that from, from time to time as a spiritual discipline, but I could tell for her, she was using it as kind of 
a diet um, and more diabolical yet, almost smuggling in um, this really thing that was really bad for her under the auspices of her spirituality or her religion. But I think Chip's right. It, it is very much a fad. Um, and so all the more reason why we want to be a little bit um, skeptical, perhaps just add those general calls to, to fast as a diet strategy. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, here's an easy way that you can lose 10 pounds, right? Um, in point of fact, it's not very easy anyway, because you've got to go without eating for several days. So, <laughs> but be that as it may. Number three on your handout then, fasting forces dependence on the father's word. Fasting forces dependence on the father's word. This is really the basic power of fasting. And Hans kind of alluded to this, that when you are going without, it forces you to lean on the Lord in a, a fresher, different kind of way. And of course, we see this with Jesus himself. This is the story today, although we had Mark's account in worship, which is just very abbreviated. But in Matthew's uh, more expanded account, it says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, wait for it, he was hungry. <laughs> and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's really the, the, the underscoring verse for the whole spiritual discipline of fasting. Jesus's words here, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So in fasting, we're able to set that aside. We recognize that, yes, ultimately we need bread. We need our daily bread. We pray for that. But for a time, we set that aside in order to remember that I don't live by bread alone, that I'm not um, merely a material creature, but I am also a spiritual creature and that those things intersect and that what matters most at the end of the day is not even food, but it's the food of God's word, that that's what sustains us not only temporally, but eternally, see. It's easy to forget that as you go about your day-to-day -day life, right? I mean, we can get very focused on just material concerns. How am I, how am I going to eat? What am I going to do? You know, how, how will I get clothes and all these things? And Jesus says, I was reading this morning, Matthew 6, where Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what your, your clothes you'll put on, what you're going to eat, because God feeds the birds. He clothes the flowers. And how much more does he care about you? Fasting kind of is a way of carving that out that remembrance of, of God. Now let's think about um, the other ways of some other means of fasting. We talk, speak of it in terms of food. Can, that, can you have that same effect if you're fasting from other stuff as well? Or so um, take, for instance, uh, a popular idea nowadays, and I mention it later, like a digital Sabbath. One day a week, you're like, okay, I'm just taking the phone and I'm locking it in a drawer, right? or I'm not going to go on the internet, I'm not going to get on the laptop or, or whatever. Does that have, or can it have the same impact that the going without food type of fasting does? Do you think? Sure. Right. Yeah. It does free up time as well. And sure. And gives you a chance, if you think about it. Right. That now, you know, the reason you're doing it is that you can be closer to God. Yeah. That maybe you won't be able to be closer to God because you might follow. This has been an interference in my life. Sure. Maybe cut back or right. whatever. And yeah. So, and maybe it doesn't have that same degree of that elemental internal impact, but it can still be really helpful, especially if you find yourself every day, you know, checking emails for an hour or, you know, spending so much time on Facebook or Twitter or what have you, it can be good just to say, you know what, one day we can go and do that. Yeah, Tara. Oh, good question. So uh, Tara's question is, what would a workaholic have to give up? Well, I mean, God anticipated this, right? He says, I'm going to command you one day a week not to work because I know that you guys have this temptation. You've always got more to do. There, there's always more to do, right? 
And I don't care if you are retired. We talk about this a lot. You retired folks, you work harder than the rest of us. I see you. Your schedules are more full. You know, with me and my kids, like our social calendar is pretty much wide open. I see the retired folks. Well, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. Goodness gracious, stay busy. But no, I, uh, there is that, that sense, yeah, of really resting, putting things aside for at least one day a week. I mean, this is, the, this is really God's um, idea with worship and with the Sabbath is carving out time so that we can receive from him. And all of fasting, whether it be from food or something else, has the same basic pattern to it. It's carving out that time, that energy, that space, whether it be physical space or like mental space, so that we can receive from him more deeply, draw closer to him through prayer, sometimes just through solitude, resting in his presence. Now, some of you perhaps uh, are already a little bit skeptical about this. Ah, I just don't know about this. But notice number four on your handout, Jesus takes for granted that his followers will fast. Jesus just assumes that this is going to be the case. And he, he does this in a couple of places. Matthew 6, which we mentioned already. Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, someone could say, well, yes, Jesus assumes it because this was such a common practice um, of that day. And so he, he can't just throw it out altogether. He knows it's going to happen, so he has to presuppose it. He's not necessarily saying you should fast. Fair enough, but I think the fact that he grants it this legitimacy and he, he concedes that this is probably going to be part of your spirituality. Remember in that same passage from Matthew 6, he talks about giving alms, which is to say offerings for the poor. He talks about prayer. These are things that he also assumes are going to be part of our life. So I think it's fair to say that Jesus envisions fasting having a place within the life of faith. But I think it's even more explicit later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, talking about himself. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. I would submit to you that we are in that time that Jesus was talking about when the bridegroom has been taken away from us. We're living in this in-between time from our Lord's first coming and from his second coming to his second coming. And so he does seem to be saying here, hey, look, this is going to happen. But I'm curious. Have you heard much teaching about fasting? Can you recall, you know, growing up or over the years, is this something that you heard talked about or do you have a, a Bible study or a sermon that you remember hearing on fasting that you found helpful for you? Or is this one of those things that there just has that you haven't really heard much about one way or the other? Because from I know from, from my perspective, um, it wasn't something that I heard a lot about. And I remember um, distinctly, it was Lent, and the pastor called for us to each fast one one day a week, and I was in, and I was just floored by this, and I thought, okay, this is like we're really getting after it. I mean, you know, this is kind of skin in the game. You're going to go without eating, like this is really you're you're trying to to practice your faith in this way. But I remember being afterward in the narthex as people were milling about and overhearing this guy say, pastor wants us to fast. <laughs> I'm a Lutheran. I don't need to fast. It made me mad. I was upset. I was like, what? Finally, like this, this is something that, that we, we should do. Scriptures talk about it. But what's been your experience? Is it something that you remember hearing about or has it just not been, not been there? Okay. Over the years, done some Bible studies on it. Sure. Yes, right. Unless it's like a hunger strike, which is different from a fast, right? It has political purposes rather than, than spiritual ones. Yeah. Anybody else you can recall? Yeah, Esther? Yeah. Right. There you go. Right. That's the total opposite of what Jesus is saying, right? Yeah. Let's have a sign-up sheet on the back, and let's see who's fasting. 
And for how long? And what all are you fasting from? Like, guys, this is directly the opposite of what the Lord has, has talked about here. Now, there are times that the scriptures um, will call for a general fast. And in history, there, this has happened, where like a nationwide sort of thing. But in that case, it's sort of like an all or nothing, an, or an all or individual, which is to say, if it's not just an individual you and God sort of thing, then it's uh, everybody's doing it, whether that be a church-wide time of, of prayer and fasting or even a nationwide sort of thing, which, I mean, you're hard pressed to imagine that in this day and age, you know, that call. But this was something that did happen, happened in this, in this country. I believe in World War II, there were calls for National Day of, of Prayer and Fasting. Um, so that kind of thing does exist. And that gets me to uh, number five on your hand out there, that fasting and prayer are like peanut butter and jelly, right? They go together preferably crunchy, as I've said before, but they, they go together. Daniel says, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So you also have a third element that often does show up there as well, sackcloth and ashes. We'll have to do a separate Bible study on how you can start to incorporate sackcloth and ashes into your daily faith. I don't have a whole lot of it uh, around, but did have some ashes a few days ago, but I digress. Um, and you see it, especially in the book of Acts, where there's this call for prayers and fasting, Acts 13. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Isn't this noticing? Isn't this interesting that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, it says, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. How do you suppose the Holy Spirit spoke to them? I mean, it doesn't give us the impression that it's like when, you know, Saul hears the voice of the Lord. What do you think that speaking was like? Yeah. Yeah. And that um, this is oftentimes, I think, kind of a telltale thing is not something that you had considered or previously were like mulling over when it just like, oh, there it comes like a bolt out, out of the out of the sky. But I think, you know, it happens in, in prayer more often than not. Right. And there's something about fasting that it's like by not having food, it somehow opens your ears more. I mean, I'm not really good at, uh, you know, uh, uh, Oh, anatomy. Um, but I don't think usually when you eat, it doesn't usually go to your ears. Um, but it, there does seem to be something about refraining from eating helps to open up your ears to what, what God is saying. Again, in Acts 14, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, maybe you're noticing a theme here. When are those times of prayer and fasting? Uh, well, especially for the early church. What, why did they have those times of prayer and fasting? What were they about to do? Make a decision. That's right. And uh, golly, I think that this is something worth attending to more, really. Um, especially when we find ourselves making difficult decisions and saying, you know, I, I don't know what you're like, but too often I think I just fall into the, let's do a pro and con list, right? Let's just work this out and if the pro list is longer than the con list, that wins, you know, something like that. But uh, you see this in the scriptures again and again and again, that when a, a difficult decision is to be made to take time for prayer and fasting. Again, this doesn't have to be a prayer, uh, a fasting of 40 days or something like that. Um, maybe it's just for a meal or maybe it's a day. Um, but I think that there's something really valuable for us to pay attention to there. If you're making a decision, to do that. Yeah, Gordon. Right. Right. Good question. So Gordon asks, you know, is it, uh, are, are you kind of going through, working through a loophole if you decide, all right, I'm going to have a huge breakfast. All right. Uh, you know, I'm going to have pancakes and eggs and bacon. And then I'm going to fast from lunch and I'm going to have a big dinner again, too. I would say you're probably missing the point. I'm not sure it's going to be as beneficial for you. Right. <laughs> What's that, Tom? 
Is that's what the Muslims do a lot? Tom says. Yeah, yeah, right. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's just uh, if if your goal is to fast and to set aside aside some time and maybe clear out not only your stomach but your your mind. I think it, it probably works across purposes at least a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, we we take that time of just carving it out so that we can listen to the Lord more acutely. Lord, what would you, what would you have for me? There's no promise or guarantee that he's going to speak to you in a, a clear, compelling, much less audible way if you do that. But I do think it can help us be a little bit more spiritually sensitive to what God would be leading us to. Yeah. Good. All right. So we've talked a lot about how fasting is about negation, denying ourselves, which it is. But the scriptures also make the point, number six on your handout, that fasting is about action as well as negation. It's not just denying ourselves, but it also means um, doing things and doing things perhaps that we wouldn't or didn't have time to do before or what have you. Um, this is from Isaiah 58. God says to the people through the prophet, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So this is a really interesting passage, but I think it hits on something that Luther also does in the small catechism, which is that if we just focus even in our spiritual discipline on things that we're not doing or things that we are doing and lose sight of its ultimate overarching purpose of walking in the Lord's ways, of, of hearing his voice and following him, then it can very easily just become a way that we puff ourselves up with self-righteousness. Say, oh, what a good boy am I? Because I didn't put my thumb in the pie, right? Um, but you might recall in the small catechism, in the section on the Ten Commandments, with each of the Ten Commandments, Luther includes in his explanation of the commandments two parts. So for instance, the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in any way. Cool. Haven't killed anybody lately? Doing good. But then Luther continues, but help and support him in every physical need. So that he, he's pointing out, do not murder doesn't just mean don't kill a guy. It also means help him stay alive. <laughs> and I think as Christians, we can fall into this sometimes where we just, if we just focus on ourselves, and especially if we get into what author Dallas Willard calls a gospel of sin management, where it's like, oh, I'm just not doing stuff. We're missing the point. Christ Jesus has redeemed you, has forgiven you. You cannot fall away from him, okay? Therefore, we have the freedom to uh, try things, to seek to be faithful in new ways. We don't have to worry, in other words, about, oh, if I do this, I might accidentally mess it up. I might sin in some way. You probably will. But you have the freedom to go forward boldly, trusting in him that if you do sin, if you do fail, he will forgive you. And that perhaps in the process, he will use you in order to serve and to bless somebody else. You with me? This is what he's talking about here in Isaiah 58. And he gives some very concrete sorts of things too. That if you go without, if you fast, it shouldn't just be about denying yourself, but also to share your bread with the hungry. I, how much, I mean, this makes perfect sense, right? I'm not going to have this meal. And instead, I'm going to share this meal with somebody else. And again, this can be a very practical sort of thing. I'm going to go without. Maybe you find yourself, um, you know, usually on this meal, I'm going out to lunch, right? I'm, you know, I'm stopping at McDonald's or Subway or whatever. Instead of that 10 bucks, I'm going to use that 10 bucks to get some food for the little free pantry, or I'm going to, you know, donate it, or I'm going to, you know, just specifically buy somebody a meal, whatever it might be. I mean, it's a very practical way in which this kind of translates. And it doesn't have to be tit for tat like that, you understand. Um, but that's a way to kind of, to think about that. All right. Thoughts or, or reflections about that? It's not just about negation, but also about action. Yeah, Esther. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yes, I have food. I have food that you don't know about. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's very well put. Thank you for reminding us of that passage. So Jesus saying, "My, I have food that you don't know about, and my food is to do the will of the Father. That's right. So when we feel that gnawing, of physical hunger reminds us of our deeper spiritual hunger for ourselves and for others, which is ultimately for the Lord himself. I think Psalm 63 says my, uh, uh, Oh, now it escapes me. That always tends to happen. Psalm 63. I will look it up if it's in the, uh, the hymnal here. Of course it's not, but it's something to the effect of my soul thirsts for you. My, my heart longs for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, that ultimately our hunger and our thirsting is after God himself. And in his uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says something interesting where uh, he makes this connection where um, when we have that physical hunger, that doesn't necessarily tell us that we will have bread, but it tells us that we are creatures who are made to eat bread. See, and he says, similarly, when we feel that deeper longing and gnawing that nothing, no earthly thing can seem to satisfy, that's also a pointer that there that we are made for something more, right? That we are creatures that are ultimately made to be in union with God, to do the Father's will. Very good. All right, number seven on your handout then. Fasting is fine outward training, but no substitute for fervent faith, okay? So this just underscores and reinforces a caveat that we've already made, that ultimately it's not I mean, fasting is a good thing to do, but it's not something that justifies us before the Father. And you think of the great story in Luke 18, where you've got the Pharisee and the tax collector together in the temple, and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you imagine if somebody prayed like this in worship? <laughs> Chip stands up, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like, no. You would never do that, Chip, but it's, it's hilarious. But I think Jesus means it to be kind of hilarious. Uh, I fast twice a week. There it is. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This guy that doesn't fast twice a week, he's the one who's acceptable to God because he has that fervent faith, trusting that his justification is received rather than achieved. See, But I have in mind also the words of, of Luther in the small catechism uh, in the section on the Lord's Supper. And the question is asked, who receives this sacrament worthily? And this is interesting for two reasons. He says, fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. I don't remember ever hearing that or learning about that when I was in confirmation class. I'm sure that I did, but I don't remember it being there. I'm coming up in a few weeks with the confirmands about the Lord's Supper. You better believe I'm going to underscore this for them, right? This is fine outward training. It's good. And what Luther probably has in mind especially was the ancient practice of not um, eating before you receive the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. I believe don't quote me on this, but I believe this is why it has the name breakfast, why we call it breakfast, because it was the meal by which you would break the fast. If you fasted before receiving the sacrament on the Lord's day, then you'd have that meal that breaks the fast. I believe that's true, but um, you could probably find out something else on the internet. Um, but anyway, I think that's what Luther probably has in mind, especially not just a general fast, but specifically on the Lord's day, don't, eating before, don't eat before you come to the Lord's table. But then he goes on to say, but that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, 
given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, that's what matters most. Um, there's an old hymn that I, I quote in these, along these lines that all the fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. All the fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. That's what makes you worthy to receive that. Fasting, outward training, it's good. But our worthiness comes not from anything within us, but if anything, from our lack of things, that he, that we recognize the need, that we receive everything from him. So I think, we, you know, we keep that balance. We recognize fasting is, is a good thing, but ultimately faith and faith alone is what saves us. All right, but then number eight, and uh, uh, this I think is a, another really overlooked point when it comes to fasting, that fasting is fulfilled in feasting. That the purpose of the fast ultimately, I mean, to draw us closer to God, yes, but that it finds its fulfillment in the feast right? That God has created us to live in these rhythms. And I love how the church year um, uh, forms us and conforms us to this kind of rhythm. There are seasons like Lent that we're in right now, which is a season of fasting. But then following on its heels is the season of feasting, of Easter. And you know this kind of experientially, subjectively, that Easter is way more fun if you have had some kind of self-denial during Lent. I mean, Easter is great no matter what. Don't get me wrong. But if, you know, if you have been abstaining from sweets throughout the season of Lent and then you make it to Easter, oh man, those cookies taste great, right? If you've been, and sometimes, I mean, it may be the case that you fast from things that you don't miss anymore and you just continue that. But ultimately this feast is, is most deeply appreciated when we have carved out that space through fasting. So then, then it can be filled through feasting. First uh, Corinthians five, this is one of the readings for Easter often cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. I mean, this was a kind of fast getting all the, in the, for the old Testament folks, getting the, all the leaven out for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We fast for the sake of feasting. Because it's that much more fun to do so. Revelation 19.9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, it is a feast. And to go back to Jesus' words before, when the bridegroom is with them, they do not fast. It's not a time of fasting. It's a time of feasting. It's a time of rejoicing. So that in a sense, this, our whole life in this age is a kind of fast from the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're living in the midst of the long fast. But ultimately, we are looking forward to the long eternal feast where we are once again reunited with the bridegroom and there's not gonna be a place for fasting anymore. Can I get an amen? Amen, that's what we're looking forward to. I read this um, passage from uh, author Anthony Esselin and I, I found this really interesting. He was doing some cultural commentary. He was talking about the nuns. And you know, I've mentioned this before. That's this new demographic that we have now. People who on their uh, surveys or what have you, when they're asked what religion they have, they check the box that says none. Okay? It's the fastest growing demographic, especially for people under 40. So he says, let me name the things whereof the nuns have none. They are not apt to have feasts, big meals maybe, and debauchery too often. But the feast that brings people together in joy because they stand in the light of the transcendent God, none. We must have feasts. The more and the more solemn, the merrier. A paradox that the nuns do not understand. Another author, a philosopher named uh, Joseph Pieper, he says that feasts are a joyous affirmation of existence. Feasts are a joyous affirmation of existence. It's us putting our amen to the fact that something exists rather than nothing, he says. That for us to, to feast, it's, it's our echoing of the words of the Father at creation. It is good. It is very good to delight in what God has made. And uh, I love the word conviviality or convivial, which literally means to feast together. And that when something is, is convivial, it's coming together. I mean, even 
under that, the root is to, to live together, to share life together, to enjoy one another's company. This is part of, you don't need me to tell you, why the last year has been so hard, right? We're realizing, oh, maybe that wasn't just, you know, some extra thing, but maybe that, like, the gathering together with other people is really essential to who we are as human beings, to eat together, to drink together, to feast together, to enjoy other people's company. It's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. This is how the Father has, has made us. So as I start to, to close up here and uh, leave some time for your, your questions or other thoughts, let me give you five concrete ideas for practicing fasting. If you are persuaded and you're like, okay, so I want to dip my toe into this. This isn't something I've done. How could I do this? Um, number one, skip breakfast on a Sunday. Like we talked about following that ancient custom of the Lord's Supper being your first food on the Lord's day. This is just a small thing, but I, it's really a joyful thing when the first food on your lips, on your tongue, on a Sunday is the Lord's Supper. And then by the time you get home, you're ready for a great meal. Now, I'm curious for how many of you, this was not the case in my home growing up, for how many of you was like your Sunday lunch, your biggest meal of the week or where it was, it was like a big thing. I've heard that this is, this is something, okay, for, well, for a number of you. And again, that was probably in part a practical reason because mom had more time to prepare it, right? Um, but I wonder if it's also reflective of, of this practice of Sunday, Sunday afternoon, this is going to be our big meal and the family is going to get together. You know, I'm so jealous of, of you Dankies, or I guess it was the, was the, the Dolphs is that, uh, where you've got like all this family right there within a half mile. And I just imagine everybody being able to get together for, you know, the Sunday, Sunday dinner or something. And maybe others of you that have family close are able to do that. You know, my folks aren't close enough that we're able to do that every Sunday. But if you do have that, you know, God bless you. How much more um, to be able to enjoy that? Anyway, I digress as usual. Um, so number two, second idea, implement a weekly digital Sabbath. One day when you turn off your phone and your devices, mentioned this already, um, you know me as the guy with the old-fashioned dumb phone that I am, uh, you know, a somewhat practicing Luddite that I really think that it's valuable at least one day a week to just turn the things off, put them in the drawer, turn off the computer, don't check the email, whatever you got to do. And there are also apps that you can put on your phone or on your computer, which force you, which actually block it on your computer. One of them is called cold turkey. Another one's called self-control, where you basically use you know, how much self-control do we have a day? Maybe like five minutes worth, something like that. You use some of that little bit of self-control that you have that at the beginning of the day or the night before you say, all right, I'm using this app and I'm, I'm, and it'll, you can put on there. Here's the websites that I can't access, or you can just say everything. And then, you know, later we need this really for our cabinets, uh, like the, where the cookies are, <laughs> you know, there's a lock on it that you can't get open. But, uh, you know, then you'd go to check your Facebook later and no, nope, it's blocked. You can't do it. You can start your computer, restart. It doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> can't change it. Um, so that will be another, another idea. Number three, you want to go a little bit further, practice fasts of 12 hours. So no lunch and then 24 hours, no breakfast or lunch and devote the extra time to a prayer walk, for instance, um, to reading the scriptures or, you know, to serving, um, in some capacity, volunteering, or maybe just some time, some quiet time with the Lord, whatever it might be. Now, if you are really curious about some of the physical effects, I brought this uh, along. I mentioned before, it's kind of the standard book on the, on the subject, The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster uh, about spiritual disciplines. And um, I don't cover everything that he covers, but in his chapter on fasting, he has this fascinating section which gets really into the nitty-gritty details of uh how it works as your body goes along i just want to read this little little part here he's talking about okay how, here's how you feel the first day here's how you feel the second day he says by the sixth or seventh day you will begin to feel stronger and more alert hunger pains will continue to diminish until the ninth or tenth day they're only a minor irritation the body will have eliminated the bulk of toxins and you will feel good your sense of concentration will be sharpened and you will feel as if you could continue fasting indefinitely. Physically, this is the most enjoyable part of the fast. Thank you, Richard Foster. However, 
anywhere between 21 and 40 days or longer, depending on the individual, of course, hunger pains will return. This is the first stage of starvation and the pain signal that the body has used up its reserves and is beginning to draw on the living tissue. The fast should be broken at this time. <laughs> Good to know. So anyway, I've, I've got this if you're interested in uh, reading more about that. All right, just a couple more things. Uh, number four, observe the ember days. This is another kind of throwback, but the uh, ember days, and I'm forgetting now off the top of my head why they're called ember days, um, but these were days for prayer, fasting, and giving thanks to God for the bounty of his creation. They happen four times a year, um, kind of uh, along with both the church seasons, but also the natural seasons. So the ember days would be the Wednesday and Friday following the first Sunday in Lent. It's part of what made me think of mentioning it. So Wednesday and Friday of this coming week are ember days. Uh, the first Wednesday and Friday following Pentecost, the Wednesday and Friday following Holy Cross Day, which is September 14th, and the Wednesday and Friday following St. Lucy Day on December 13th. So observe the ember days. Use that day. Don't have any food. Do a 36-hour fast. Or again, just skip uh, lunch or skip lunch and breakfast for uh, a shorter one. And if that's something you're interested in learning more about, I've got more resources on that too. But then fifth and finally, we've talked a lot about fasting. Let's close with the feasting. Go all out for your Easter supper. I mean, a lot of us do this already, but uh, there's a book by a guy who's a Episcopalian priest named Robert Farr Capon. And he wrote a book, which he calls a, a theological cookbook <laughs> entitled The Supper of the Lamb. And it's a, a meditation on eating and the process of food preparation but it's also provides the menu and the recipes for having a, a lamb supper for 12. And I've never done it. Maybe this will be the year that, that I do it. Um, but uh, I think that could be a great, a great thing to do. Go all out your supper. And I'll just do a, a plug here, which I know they won't hear because they don't use computers, but the Mennonites that at cream cup dairy, who have great dairy, they deliver the milk. They also, every year they have lamb for sale. Um, when it, we get close to Easter and it is so good. It is so good. So if you don't already get cream cup, you should, it's great milk. They deliver it to your door. I love it. And, uh, but they also will give you some lamb. You have to pay for it. But anyway, wrapping up any last, uh, comments or questions, you're all ready to stop eating. It's great. Fasting always seems like a good idea until you start doing it. And you're like, maybe I'll do it next week instead. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you can get over that first hump, you're probably going to make it. But it's really the first like 20 minutes that are hard. <laughs> it's especially hard. But good. Okay. Thank you for your participation. And I uh, look forward to seeing you next week. God bless.